continuing tonight the reflection we began last night. We looked at these three reflections or three questions that Yanaponika Tara suggests. Is there a need for a refuge? Does a refuge exist? What is its nature? can um, probably felt many times today a need for a refuge. Maybe we directly experienced it, but probably we felt the need. One of the things that happens when we're on retreat and the environment is really simple is we see how the mind can sweep us away or sweep itself away. Different storms or different dramas that arise in the mind and it just sweeps it away. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a teaching called the Four Mind-Changing Reflections. And I think it helps us to understand the need for refuge. The need... You know, refuge can mean more than just this uh, spiritual path or what we formally think of as a spiritual path. Refuge also has a sense of being something we can pour our heart into, like a real quality of love or devotion. Refuge has the flavor of uh, a training too, like I mentioned this morning in the guided meditation. Something that we're happy to do, happy to dig into. So this particular Tibetan teaching, the four mind-changing reflections, they're reflections on the preciousness of human life, impermanence, the law of karma, and the defects of samsara. Samsara means perpetual wandering, or the wandering on of dukkha, moving from one stressful thing to another stressful thing. And so we can reflect. When I was uh, thinking about this, I looked over at my teacup and dangling there was the little label with the quote and it said, there's nothing more precious than the self. (laughs) Sort of a confusing statement for someone who uses these particular teachings. But maybe what they mean is there's nothing more precious than this life. reverence for life or an appreciation of the confluence of events that make this life what it is. How rare it is that conditions come together to make this situation the way it is. It's really, it's literally amazing that these conditions exist as they exist now for us. And not only is it amazing, but it's also really fragile, like with our vivid imaginations, we can imagine so many ways that 
this could rapidly change. We've all seen enough, you know, apocalyptic movies, I read dramatic books. We have all kinds of ways that things could change suddenly in our lives, or we just know from direct experience how things can change very suddenly. So just getting a sense, however good the conditions are in our life, that that expression of, you know, stability, happiness, or whatever it is that we are experiencing to some degree, that that's a very fragile thing that's come together through innumerable causes and conditions. And if they were a little different, then this would be different. And then the second... Um, reflection is on impermanence, that recognition that we can't rest on any ground, everything is unstable, uncertain, that the end of any accumulation is dispersion. There isn't any such thing as, you know, putting together some wealth or whatever and tucking it away, but anything we pull together, falls apart. And that this impermanence isn't a mistake, it's just in the fabric of things. Joseph Goldstein had a couple phrases that he used a lot when he was teaching, anything can happen anytime. And another one was, if it's not one thing, it's another. And just a sense of that uh, life keeps tumbling along changing. We can reflect on the law law of karma, that actions have consequences, and it's really a reflection that we can't hide from our actions. We can't hide from what's been set in motion. Or that, you know, what's unfolding is just the natural unfolding of what was past. In uh, one of Joseph Goldstein's book, he asked the question, if you were to come down for breakfast and you were given a choice to be given a lot of money or to meet somebody who would do a good job at illuminating all your defects, what would we choose? And, uh, you know, in given the world of karma, we'd probably be, be better off choosing the person who illuminates our defects. You know, whatever it is we're not seeing about our character, about our behavior. But we'll probably choose the money. So we live in this world of karma where actions have consequences. And in a sense, we're trapped in the lawfulness of this. And of course, it all gets refined down to, it all comes down to intention in the mind has consequences. And then the last one, the defects of samsara. This, I think, was best summed up by uh, Joko Beck in her line, promises that are never kept. And that's really what this points to. You know, we're in the gravitational pull of sense experience, of of being attracted to sense experience and being repulsed by sense experience. And uh, 
we engage this wholeheartedly, you know, trying to get the sense experiences that we define as good and avoid the ones that we define as bad. And this is what she means by the promise that's never kept. It always feels that we're getting somewhere by pursuing our sense experiences, getting rid of painful sense experiences. And even today, you know, if we could look back, how many births and deaths have there been? You know, the anticipation of lunch was a birth, and then there was actually lunch. You know, maybe that was to some degree a death of our expectations, because then it was, and then it was the birth. We saw, I saw at least, the brown thing sitting up there next to the water jugs. You know, so that was another birth. Oh, are these really brownies? Or are they gluten-free brownies? <laughs> Just being honest about my mind. <laughs> but so many ways of birth and death, like, uh, oh, will this next sit be painful? You know, that idea is its own birth. Each sit is its own birth. The ending of each sit is a death. We might have anticipated the small group, a birth. The small group ends, it dies. The talk begins, it will cease. So we don't have to believe in, you know, multiple lifetimes or whatever that might mean in order to have a sense of the defects of samsara. But just getting a sense of how our mind is born and dies in so many experiences, so many emotions, so many views of things and stories about things, birth and death and birth and death. And it just leads to these very obvious questions. You know, where does it go? Where is it going? Where do, when does it end? So when we reflect on the preciousness of this life and impermanence and the law of karma and the defects of samsara, we really can get a sense, not not a negative sense about life, but just a sense that life experience, sense experience, it's not going to deliver the happiness, the safety that we actually want. It's not that it's bad. Life, conditioned existence birth and death, all these things that come and go. It's just what it is. So one of the first uh, development of faith, you know, and using these reflections from Yanaponikatera, you know, is there a need for a refuge? Is there a refuge? Well, one of the first insights, the first steps of coming out of these reflections is Pursuing sense experiences endlessly is not it. That's the beginning of understanding refuge, just knowing what it's not about. I mean, when we were teenagers, a lot of us, some of the time at least, thought uh, what it was about was being cool or being seen as cool. You know, later in our 20s and 30s, or whenever, maybe now, we thought what it was about was finding our true love. 
And then for some people, it's, you know, how to gracefully or one way or another get away from the one we thought we truly loved. (laughs) You know, get out of the relationships, start something new. So just gazing back on our life, on our day, we can have that confidence, that faith, that the endless pursuit of another experience, but this one, it's going to make a difference, uh, that's not it. And it really then, you know, it begs the question, well, what is it? If it's not that, what is it? What is the refuge? What can we have confidence in? What's worthy of devotion and love? what's worthy of training. And, you know, we all already know just from our study, we already know the Buddha's telling us that it's inside, it's within. It's not a conditioned event, it's an unconditioned event, an unconditioned refuge. And this makes a lot of sense to us. I mean, it's just very reasonable, even on an intellectual level, it makes a lot of sense that what is really going to be satisfying, it can't be something out here in the constructed world, because we have seen, it's so apparent to us, with even a little reflection, that everything is unstable, uncertain. What, whatever is ever put together can be taken apart. I find it very poignant to uh, just reflect on the inevitable dissolution of sort of our national power, the United States power in the world. You know, how it had its own particular trajectory, it bloomed, and then there's the inevitable fading. You know, Buddha, the Buddha said this even about the Dharma, the teachings that he set in motion, that they would also have a that natural blooming, flowering, a lot of people benefiting. Then, you know, inevitably things become institutionalized, get corrupted, people are forgetful, people water things down so they fit more their predispositions. Oh, the Buddha didn't really mean that, did he? <laughs> you know? You could possibly say that sense pleasures are limited, (laughs) that they're not really going to lead to happiness. It must have meant something else. Maybe he's just talking about overindulging in them. That just the right amount makes us happy. Not too much, not too little. Was that the Goldilocks? There's a famous um, section of the Parinibbana Sutta, the discourse of the Buddha's last days. And uh, it's a very long discourse. It includes the whole lead-up, not just the last day of the Buddha, but I think even the last week or so, a couple weeks, maybe. And in there, he says, Be islands unto yourselves. Be refuges unto yourselves. Hold fast to the Dhamma as an island. 
Hold fast to the Dhamma as a refuge. Seek not for refuge in anyone except yourselves. Whosoever shall be an island unto themselves and a refuge unto themselves, it is they among seekers of awakening who shall reach the heights. Many different ways the Buddha, you know, using different similes, different methods, points us to the, what we're looking for is already here. Or as one <clears throat> spiritual writer said, what we are looking for is what is looking. What we are looking for is what is looking. So that's why, you know, the refuges uh, in an external way, we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, in an external way, we think, well, I'm taking refuge in this guy who lived 2,500 years ago, who had a lot of wisdom, came to understand his mind deeply. I'm taking refuge in his teachings, the Dhamma. I'm taking refuge in those who have followed his teachings and have gotten some insight, the Sangha. So that's just on the external level. But we need to, over time with practice, see the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha internally in our experience. So we see the Buddha as the awakened quality of the mind, the empty quality of mind, the unconditioned aspect of mind. In the Dhamma we see things as they are, like everything illuminated, radically sensitive, intimate with the world. And Sangha is this, um, like I mentioned last night, these beautiful qualities that we see naturally arising when the heart that knows, knows things intimately, opens completely. In the Tibetan tradition, they talk about it slightly differently. They talk about the uh, empty essence of mind as Buddha, the empty essence There's no center to the mind. There's no center to anything. There's interdependence, but there's no center. There's no somebody at the center, uh, at the control desk. Yet, even though there's nobody at the center, it's empty of center, centerless. Even though that's true, there's this natural luminosity the luminous nature of the mind, or as once the Buddha said, the radiant nature of the mind. The mind just knows. It knows everything. The 10,000 things, as it's said in the Buddhist tradition, sort of a simile for everything is being known. Emptiness is aware of everything, is knowing everything. And out of that, in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about the manifold capacity or the unstoppable compassionate action. So we have the empty nature of the mind, the luminous nature of the mind, and the other aspect of the mind is this, you know, this life energy that responds, freely responds, appropriately responds when there's no greed and aversion in the mind, no delusion. So this is what we're uncovering. You know, this is what's conducive of real faith. A couple other passages where the Buddha uses this image of an island. Having nothing, clinging to nothing, 
That is the island. There is no other. That is Nibbana, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. Having nothing, clinging to nothing, that is the island. There is no other. That is Nibbana, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. And uh, we have to understand, like when the Buddha taught this way, he was talking about the quality of the heart, not whether we have a big house or a small apartment or live on the street. There was once a monk who evidently had some pride about uh, living a very austere, secluded life. And uh, some of the younger monks told the Buddha about this monk and he said, well, go, go find that monk, that monk who lives in seclusion, and tell him to come see me. And so the, the, the young monks went to get him, and he came back and saw the Buddha. And the Buddha asked him how he lives, and he explained. And the Buddha said, you know, very nice, that's a good way to live alone, to live with seclusion. But I'll tell you a better way to live with seclusion. And basically, he's talk, he talked to him about the seclusion of non-attachment, the mind that's secluded from greed and aversion. But that's a better way to live alone, to live in a secluded way. So it isn't about the out, uh, external. It's really about whether the mind is attached. And, uh, you know, you probably know from your own experience we can have very little but be very attached to what we have. And there are people, maybe even us, uh, some of us at times, where we had a lot but we weren't attached at all to it. So attachment isn't a function of how much we have or how much is so-called our stuff. You know, attachment is this inner process of the mind. Are we taking it personally? And here's another passage where the Buddha talks about, uses the simile of the island. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay. And this is why I call it Nibbana. And Nibbana means cessation, the cessation of greed, anger, and, and delusion. This is from Joseph's book, uh, Joseph Goldstein's book, One Dharma. There's a chapter on that, in that book called The Awakening of Faith. He says, The recognition that the whole of the Dharma can be found within our own bodies and minds changes the meaning and quality of faith for us. No longer do we look outside of ourselves for solutions. We have seen where the path lies. All we require are skillful means that will help us walk it. And he goes on, and it might be nice for us all to reflect about our first time when we realized this, that it, you know, that everything we need lies within. And he gives his example of uh, being in the Peace Corps in Thailand and 
I think he was teaching in Bangkok, maybe teaching English in Bangkok or something. But in the evenings he'd go to one of the temples and there was some course for Westerners on Buddhism. And Joseph had been a philosophy major at Columbia before he joined the Peace Corps. So he had a lot of questions and he noticed over time that a lot of the other Westerners stopped coming to the study group because he was asking too many questions, he presumed. So finally, one of the monks, he thought in frustration, said to him, maybe you should meditate. <laughs> so the Joseph thought, well, yeah, it's kind of a good idea. <laughs> you know, maybe I should check it out. So he got the, what he needed and got his alarm clock. He says, he tells a story, you know, I, he set the alarm clock for five minutes. He thought that would be enough time. <laughs> and it uh, sat there. But actually, even though it was just five minutes, it turned out to be a very, this first sit of his, turned out to be a really profound experience. Where, in a way, we're taking things in our own hand. So instead of sending our mind out to the ideas, what people have said, what I think about what they've said about truth, about reality, where we have this, it's really a paradigm shift, like, well, I've got reality right here, I can check it out directly. I don't have to think about it, or read about it, or talk about it. I can turn directly toward it. And I had a sort of a similar beginning where I was uh, in my early 20s. After a breakup, I got sort of obsessed about death. It just seemed really relevant, birth and death. And started doing a lot of reading, read some really powerful books, um, including Denial of Death by Ernst Becker, a wonderful book. And... uh, and then I, I came across, I was doing a lot of spiritual reading, just so happened, one of these synchronistic things. My best friend at the time, she, we were both working at a management consulting firm in Washington, D.C., and then she decided to give it up, at least until she went to grad school, and she started working at a spiritual bookstore, one of the really good early spiritual bookstores called Yes Bookstore, some of you might know it. I think there was one in New York City and one in Washington, D.C., they had a great collection, and and so I started reading a lot. And I read a book by um, about Ramana Maharshi, and in that book it talks about his experience. He was thirteen or fourteen. He was thinking a lot about death at the time, so he thought, "Well, I'll just lie down, and I'll sort of uh, experience directly what it is to not be, and uh, kind of examine that experience directly." And it occurred to me, well, I'll try that too. So I had this, it was before I had any formal meditation practice, I had done some reading and studying, but hadn't really, it's funny how that is, you know, it doesn't really occur to you to do. <laughs> it's like, you know, and we're really into this. Even, even a lot of us, most of the time on retreat, it's like we're really interested in thinking about being on retreat, thinking about meditating, thinking about the nature of the mind instead of directly opening to experience. So I, you know, I did that contemplation on death, on non-being, really. Like really uh, looking at the mind that is uh, not clinging to anything. Because that's what I thought death would be, that you'd have to let go of everything. So I, I, I practiced, well, if that... Because that was my understanding at the time that that's what death would be. It's like everything, had sort of a materialist view of things. Everything would be taken away at death. So my mind, I'm not saying this is sort of 
intellectually honest, but my mind thought, okay, I'll practice giving up everything. And uh, so I was doing that and, you know, partly just experiencing the nature of the mind and partly using my imagination and, and just getting to that place, you know, where things were really still and I wasn't really allowing concepts or ideas to come because that would be, you know, I can't have anything. And there I was, sort of, with my particular experience at the time of emptiness or nothing happening, just being. And it's like a voice in my mind said, because uh, there was a certain poignancy in that. I mean, it was sort of a dramatic thing I was doing, so understandably there was a little poignancy in that. And then, like a voice, a wise voice said, well, who is this a problem for? And it was really a powerful, really life-changing experience. I, I don't know if sharing it in this way can kind of give you a flavor of that change, but just this idea of emptiness, like birth and death, good and bad, it only matters if there's somebody to matter to. If we make peace of letting go of everything, we can actually live freely. It's the, this idea that there's somebody who can't let go of everything. That's the problem. So that was really the beginning. After that, I was, I was quite motivated to practice and to continue to use the mind, to look at the mind. I want to read just a couple more from jo- this section of Joseph's book. He's talking about his experience. He says, I saw clearly that there was a way to go inside. This itself was was the revelation, not any particular strange or exciting experience. For so long I had been trying to understand myself through books, through the eyes of other people. I had been trying to make sense of all the uncertainties I was feeling, wanting to find out who was behind the rush of thoughts and emotions that I was taking to be myself but not really knowing how to do it. Now I saw that there was a way to directly and intimately explore my own mind. This is the transformative moment when we go from an intellectual appreciation of the Dharma to faith and confidence that awakening is possible, that we ourselves can do this. And he later, he quotes Milarepa, this great Tibetan saint from the 11th century. And Milarepa is reported to have said, I attain all my knowledge through observing the mind within. Thus all my thoughts become the teachings, the teaching of the Dhamma, and apparent phenomena are all the books one needs. So like I mentioned earlier, you might just reflect, um, you can come back to this later of course too, but reflect in your own life when you first made this discovery or the first few times you made this discovery that you can use the mind to turn back in on itself, to look directly or to open directly.
It's really understanding this power of mind to um, open things up. You know, what's been hidden behind the curtain, unexplored. The mind, in a sense, can illuminate it all. And it's like opening something up and understanding how it works. Instead of just being swept away, swept along rather by our conditioning, by the mechanics of our personality, the way you know, the different dispositions and cultural tendencies we've all taken up, we can open it up, so to speak, and take a look and really see cause and effect, see how intention makes things happen. So it really switches, changes the question like a paradigm shift from, you know, how do I get what I want? How do I get what I want? To what is it that I take this self to be, the one who wants to be? What is this one who wants? What is this wanting? Somebody said once, I'm not sure who, where it first came from, but, you know, this another way of describing this shift from the problem, you know, solving the problems that the self has to getting interested in the problem that the self is. You know, just that predicament of having a hungry beast, having somebody, a sense of self who is always complaining and wanting and tripping over life one way or another. And the Buddha, you know, the way he taught this, um, taught how we look at the mind, you know, it, it doesn't go, he doesn't go right to emptiness. He really starts, you know, as we begin to look at our life, you know, generally he would start by just, you know, in understanding the mechanics of the mind, just start by understanding really simple things. Like understanding, for example, we could take it as a project just to understand how generous intentions are good, meaning they work, they make us feel good. Just understanding the mind, the mechanics of the mind in that simple way. Being stingy isn't good, doesn't feel good, doesn't lead to good things. Being generous feels good and leads to good things. Now, this is something that we all can be experts at. I mean, I'm not saying we are, but it's not a subtle thing to observe in our own heart and in those around us. I mean, just imagine if this was a core curriculum item from preschool on, you know, that stinginess hurts. I mean, in a way, they're relatively good at it in preschool and kindergarten, and then all of a sudden it doesn't become relevant <laughs> again until we are middle-aged adults facing existential crises and we go back to some of the you know good spiritual traditions that still are around. And we learn this again then. But in between it's not really emphasized too much. But imagine if we really worked on this from early in life and really got it in our bones. Because it would just beg the question, you know, as we really got it in our bones that generosity works, stinginess doesn't work, 
we'd, we'd be naturally interested in the underlying principle. Like, is it that generosity works? Or is it the state of mind, the quality of mind that is generous? And what is that quality of mind that can be generous? And what is, that, what is the quality of mind, the essential feeling tone of the mind that can't be generous? And we'd really get to the place, the deeper place, of understanding that the construction of self is the cause for dukkha, cause for attachment and all suffering. And the absence of that construction of self-centered drama is always associated with happiness and the release of the heart. So the Buddha usually started, when he would teach people to look inward, he'd start by asking them to look at generosity, the intention to be generous, and just understand their mind on that level. And then... From there, he would teach about virtue, you know, this reverence for life and, you know, and the places where the mind justifies being mean and cruel and harmful and the places in life where we do have this reverence for life and we are full of care and then just watching the mind in that regard. Because, of course, the mind that can justify cruelty is a very a mind that is very contracted around a sense of self. And the mind that respects life, has reverence for life, is a mind that isn't congealed around a sense of self, but is beginning to appreciate that it isn't just me that matters, or even my inner circle, my immediate family that matters, because the reverence for life, of course, is a reverence for life, not a reverence for the life of my family, or the people who like me, or the just this life. So we teach generosity, then sila, or virtue. And then he would start talking about how not only are, is generosity and living an ethical life, not only does it feel good now, but all good things come your way. This is in the Bible too. You seek first the kingdom of God and all else is added unto you. If you really live a virtuous life, a kind life, a generous life, then everything comes your way. So basically what the Buddha is teaching now is that you you don't need to do anything else. You just cultivate virtue and generosity and from an ego point of view, you're going to get, if you're patient enough, you're going to get absolutely everything you've ever wanted from an ego point of view by cultivating generosity and virtue. Sort of a different approach to happiness. Again, this is something we could actually teach because it isn't Buddhist even, right? It's just actually this is human common sense. This is even before the deep insight of the Buddha. Just understanding that generosity and harmony, uh, and harmony and living in a kind way really works, really leads to happiness. But it's a way for people to start getting that understanding the mind really helps them be happy. Because think about all the times we justify being mean, gossiping or you know, all the different ways, throwing people out of our hearts, because we don't think there's any negative consequence to that. 
we just assume somehow either it's good for us, they deserve it or something, or that, you know, it doesn't really matter. But if we really understood the mind, we'd realize it has an immediate effect and it sets in motion problems. So he's, the Buddha is basically teaching about cause and effect, right? Until the person really gets to be a super expert at cause and effect, really understands their mind in terms of cause and effect, is only cultivating wholesome intentions, always abandoning unwholesome intentions, really starting to receive the fruit of that work, of cultivating wholesome intentions, abandoning unwholesome. And then the law of karma, of cause and effect, just becomes second nature to someone. And then, it's only then the Buddha starts to teach the more subtle aspects, like how oppressive it is to be in the world of cause and effect. The mind tied, the sense of self, I should say, tied to cause and effect. Just to notice that. Now, you're, this is now, now we're really good at cause and effect. So, generally people who are being beaten up by cause and effect, like wanting a good life, but always ending up in poverty, or always ending up in disappointment of one sort or another, it's hard, you know, it's hard when we're in that place not to want to try harder to get what we want, and basically through any means. But now we're starting to get what we want. People like us, success seems to come our way, we have a lot of ease in our life, we have enough, there's contentment. But just being in that world of cause and effect, it's slightly, subtly, I should say, oppressive. Because we still have to be good. There's a somebody who has to be good. There's a somebody who fears making a mistake and acting out. So the Buddha teaches about this oppressiveness, the ultimate drawbacks of sensual rewards, of living in a world where we're we're interested in good things coming. Living in a world of good and bad. And so then he starts teaching about renunciation and the insight into the empty center non-self, not-self. So we have to appreciate that uh, this refuge, it can re- it really, it's appropriate, it's appropriate for a refuge to start out being grounded in, I really get it, you know, what I'm thinking matters. The kinds of intentions that I'm watering with my thinking, it really matters. We don't have to somehow you know, feel badly if we're not moved by emptiness, that idea. Does it make sense to us? It's really just about the, the, the refuge begins, like, you know, we have this refuge, and the most obvious thing as we gaze upon our refuge is cause and effect. This is a lawful world we live in, and we can begin to play by the rules. We can come into alignment with the rules. And that that coming into alignment with the rules, naturally, that, that is the awakening process. We don't need like a different sort of technique than to open, to continue opening in more subtle ways, deeper ways. It will all unfold on its own. 
So when we uh, follow the Buddha's advice and we turn inward, you know, we see both. We see the mess, the entanglements, the weight that are the consequence of how we've been living. You know, living with attachment, living with greediness and stinginess instead of generosity, being mean and self-centered instead of kind and open-hearted, compassionate. So part of what we open to and what we're taking refuge in is the mess. And that's useful because it's, it's the direct evidence that the way it's been doesn't work. You know, the way the mind has been relating didn't work. It's like the scars, the wounds, the pain in our body. I mean, I don't know about you, but... I've uncovered, over my years of practice, I have uncovered so many layers of holding in my body. I have not come to the end of them. <laughs> and uh, what are those layers of holding? You know, as Jack Hornfield, I think, calls it the fear body, or is that Eckhart Tolle? What is it? The pain body. Pain body, yeah. And one of the others calls it the fear body. But just that the layers that have been put down because of the mind's uh, diluted sense of the way you handle life is you get tight, you push, you struggle, you hit, you say no. And so that's what we have to wake up to. But we shouldn't feel disappointed or even overwhelmed by that. It's really... Uh, it's like it's our uh, wisdom in concrete form. <laughs> really. I mean, either we... And it's so interesting, and this is such a Buddhist view of things, right? It's like we look at the contractions of our body, the wounds of our heart, you know, emotional wounds, from one point of view, and it's a big problem that we'd like to be done with. And we look from another point of view, and it's like all of the lessons we've learned are right here. It's like Wikipedia for us. <laughs> like everything we'd want to know about how to be skillful, it's like embedded in our body. Oh yeah, don't do that. And now, because once you get to know these subtle patterns of holding, then if you can stay aware of them, then as you're going about your day, you'll see how they get activated. What activates them? Oh, yeah, their shoulders are going up. Oh. oh, isn't that interesting? You know, being a little frightened, a little concerned about what people are thinking, wanting to do the right thing. These are all the ways that we've been layering the body with tension since who knows when? Forever, probably. Sharon Salzberg, in his, her book, wonderful book called Faith, she mentions a Peanuts cartoon she saw long ago. It's very funny. You probably remember one of the uh, themes that Schultz had in the Peanuts cartoons was Lucy was a, like a psychiatrist. She'd put her shingle out and 
give advice. And so Lucy's sitting in her little booth. The doctor is in, sign prominently displayed. She tells Charlie Brown, You know what your problem is, Charlie Brown? <coughs> the problem with you is that you're you. <laughs> Crushed, Charlie Brown asks, Well, what in the world can I do about that? And Lucy responds in the final frame, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the thing. It's like we're, we don't know what to do with all that pain in the heart, in the body. And it just seems messy. And even, you know, the Buddha faced this in his own way, um, mythologically at least, um, under the Bodhi tree, his night of his big insight. And at the beginning of his sit that night, he was attacked by the forces of Mara, you know, the personification of all the limited aspects of the mind, the needy and fearful and deluded aspects of the mind, you know, arising as lust and arising as, you know, fearsome images. And then finally Mara pulls out the most um, powerful weapon, self-doubt, you know. What makes you think you have the right to have this aspiration to be free, to be completely released in here, now, right here and now. And the Buddha, you probably know, touches the earth, basically asking Mother Earth to acknowledge what he's learned, acknowledged all the years, all the insights, all the seeing things as they are, all that practice. And the earth shakes, and Mara retreats. And from there, the Buddha has his deep insights. So this is the, this is the dynamic. You know, as we take refuge in the mind, in the heart, in the here and now, we shouldn't be surprised by how messy it feels, how painful it feels, how confusing it is how much it's not what we want or we think we don't want. Because remember, it's like coded information. It's like the insights aren't ever far away. They're already they're sort of coded in experience. right? Because the insight, we are, we're waking up to Dhamma the way it is. So it's already Dhamma <laughs> the way it is. So it's just a matter of having the right code or, you know, the password, which is, you know, in order to break the code, I guess, it's like we need the mind that's not confused by pain, not confused by Mara, like the Buddha. One of the things that can help is the work we did this afternoon with Mudita, you know, being able to call on all those beautiful qualities we've seen in the mind. Some of people with different religious backgrounds, you know, you might use certain um, images from that particular religious tradition or your own imagination 
that represent, though, these internal qualities of heart that we can count on. Fearlessness, clarity, patience, steadiness. You could, you know, use the list of the ten paramis. You could use the seven factors of awakening. You could use the four brahma-viharas. So you can basically come up with your own list, but the idea is that when we do open to the here and now, we need to bring our friends with us, <laughs> you know, our good friends. We need to be able to call on them because they allow us to stay open with things. And this is the transformation. It's, it's exactly this experience of opening and maybe initially being surprised, oh, this can't be it. You know, here's the Buddha. Imagine, you know, whether it's myth or not, just imagine that archetypal scene, the Buddha having practiced so um, powerfully um, ascetic practices and starving himself and doing this and that, extreme ascetic practices and then deciding this can't be the way. I'm just getting weak. The mind's getting dull because of the body breaking apart being unhealthy. So he balanced himself by eating good food and took care of himself, took care of the body, I should say, and found a really pleasant place to practice. Now feeling healthy, well-fed, sat down under the Bodhi tree and made this resolve not to move. Okay, this is as good a time as any to see things as they are. And, you know, imagine there, all of a sudden every negative tendency of his mind on full display. It'd be easy, you know, like it is for us. It's easy to give up. We sit down, and right at the beginning of the sit is that knee pain we had at the end of the sit. You know, it's like, oh, come on. (laughs) I don't get 15 minutes without pain? Or that, you know, immediately the mind. There we are again. And there's the mind thinking about the practice, instead of just settling in. Just restless, not willing just to be. And we can completely misunderstand, or we can realize the heart that can include that. So you see, Dhamma, the way it is, reveals the heart, the empty heart of the Buddha, that is okay with it as it is. It's exactly the messiness, the limitations of this conditioned world that we are, that we live in, that reveals the heart that can say yes to it, that can include it, that can be open, that can be intimate. If it was all pretty, it wouldn't be a special thing to open. (laughs) You know, pretty, and not only pretty, but permanently pretty. You know, if it was permanently pretty, well, any mind would do. You wouldn't need an awakened mind, an empty mind, empty of greed, anger, and delusion mind, to open to that. But when it's messy and confusing and ephemeral, and when there's pain and loss, then opening to that requires something Amazing, you know, it's the heart that can open to that, the heart that's unafraid of that. 
it's really helpful, you know, this leap of faith from a reactive stance in the world, a controlling stance, a grasping stance, clinging stance, to an open, released way of being. That's a big leap of faith. And it's really helpful to have uh, friends, if we could, if we can, who represent that, at least in moments. Their life, their way of being, for us, represents that freedom in the midst of life. Ease and love and skill in the midst of life. It's so impressive to see that in a person. And it doesn't mean that, you know, with our friends, probably they're not always enlightened, always free. But there are a lot of our friends who in moments manifest real freedom in the face of life. A real lightness, a real ease, a real responsivity, a natural kind of love, kind of universal or a love that goes everywhere, isn't looking for any results. It's like when you see somebody, I think the Buddha even used this image, when you see that somebody has been able to jump across something, well, we have confidence that we can jump across it, more confidence at least. I mean, maybe we need practice. Maybe we'll start with smaller streams and work our way up. So when we see somebody who's manifesting some freedom in circumstances that we'd find challenging, it's like... uh, Steve Burt was telling me about Lisa, Lisa Taylor Lake, a common ground person who died recently after many, many years of working with cancer on and off, over 10 years, I think. She died then just a couple of weeks ago. But anyway, he was there a few days before and just talking about uh, she was very lucid and, and responsive and loving and just really uh, beautiful. You know, it was very clear she was going to die soon. So it's really, that's, right, that, isn't that inspiring that people can be close to everything being taken away from them as much as they can understand and still manifesting beautiful qualities. So let's um, let's keep that in mind about in our practice tomorrow and tonight to uh, call on our good friends. You know when it's when it is difficult when we're having doubt about our refuge. Remember, our refuge initially is just to open to things as they are, and then in that trusting of the opening to things as they are, that steady, relaxed, clear presence, then we we necessarily will have to investigate dukkha, how it's arising, its cause, how it ceases, and that whole process of going beyond dukkha. But the third part is to bring in our friends, to call on our friends. This practice of gratitude and mudita, appreciative joy, learning to recognize what's beautiful in our mind. And this is a useful concentration practice in, in you know, traditional Buddhist cultures, 
people regularly would spend hours contemplating the qualities of a Buddha. But it isn't about the historic Buddha. The reason why that's such a powerful concentration practice is we're remembering the beautiful qualities that are available. And by remembering them, they get activated. So I'd recommend that we all take some time. Sometimes it can be as short as five minutes. Sometimes take an hour if you want. And a little bit like we did today in the the mudita practice at uh, 4.45, where you just remember some, you know, just creatively remember the whole diverse list of wholesome qualities of mind, of heart. And you bring them to mind. And you, as you're bringing them to mind, you realize, and they are potentials in this heart. This heart has the capacity for that full bloom of kindness, that full bloom of patience, that full bloom of clarity, intelligence, that full bloom of fearlessness. And, and then as you remember, you're going to remember the times when you had a full or partial bloom of that particular quality. And you're going to remember other people who've had it. And all of that will be useful. So it's okay to tap into remembering friends or other people you've seen with that quality really strong or times you've had it. Because those memories are little wormholes to the actual quality itself, the actual potentiality. And all of the wholesome qualities are just different facets of emptiness. Emptiness is a beautiful thing. And I'll just end by reading the Buddha's synonyms of Nibbāna. It is the unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the everlasting, the invisible, the undiversified, peace, the deathless, the blessed, safety, the wonderful, the marvelous, Nibbāna, purity, freedom, the island, the refuge, the beyond. Next time you're coming around, check out Kendrick's mobile that she made. It's in the corner of the community room. She's got these, I forget if it's 33 synonyms of Nibbana or 37, in a mobile just sort of floating around. It's a very nice piece of artwork. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. listening tonight. So we have walking practice now. When we come back at nine o'clock, we'll uh, sing, chant the metta chant together. It's on the back side of the refuge and precepts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.